Welcome to the History Slam podcast from ActiveHistory.ca. Here's your host, Sean Graham. Thank you, Adam. Welcome to the History Slam, everybody. I am Sean Graham coming at you today nearly live from Ottawa, Ontario, where today we are going to be talking about residential schools. And recently, the Canadian government designated two former residential schools as National Historic Sites. They were Shubenacadie Residential School and Portage La Prairie Residential School, uh, the latter in Manitoba and the former in Nova Scotia. And it's part of a broader effort on the part of the Canadian federal government to acknowledge the legacy of residential schools. And I am involved in this process somewhat as a member of the Parks Canada Historian team that works on the program of national commemoration. And I can say that as part of that team, we are incredibly indebted to the scholars and historians across the country and really around the world who have done incredible research on the residential school system and the implementation of the system, the strategies that the government and religious organizations used, as well as the legacy of it. And and for as much as we're indebted to the researchers, I would say we're much more indebted to the survivors and the communities across the country who have shared their stories and have allowed us to have these designations go through. And it's uh, certainly a testament to the survivors and the communities across the country that, that these things can happen. The designation of these things can, can go forward and all Canadians can be made more aware of uh, the reality of what happened in these schools and the legacy that they have, uh, not only for Indigenous communities, but for, for all Canadians. And one such work that has been uh, very instrumental and been very helpful for me personally in, in coming to understand the residential schooling system in a better way is a book by Jane Griffith entitled Words Have a Past, The English Language, Colonialism, and the Newspapers of Indian Boarding Schools, in which she looks at the newspapers that some schools would publish. And they would put that material out in an effort to get better public relations, to make it seem like everything at the school was okay. And it also served in the larger effort towards trying to eliminate indigenous languages and the colonial efforts that were put forth in these schools. A lot of it did have to do with language. And culture is so important to language. It's essential in preserving so much of traditional values and cultures. And linguicide, which Jane talks about in the show, was very central to what a lot of the schools were doing. And there's a parallel between residential schools and the tragic situation with Joyce Eshaquan, where she was insulted in the hospital by nurses as she was dying. And the systemic racism and prejudice against indigenous peoples doesn't end with residential schools and the prejudice and really in that video, if if you haven't watched it, the hatred that is put towards a Joyce Eshaquin as she's dying, it's really hard to watch and it's evidence the colonial systems and structures that were put in place are still very much present in Canada. And it's something that as we move forward, we have to continue to try to address it because as we saw last week, it is dangerous and potentially lethal to people. So the parallels between the residential school system and that tragic news out of Quebec It just really lays bare the damage that these type of colonial structures can do. So with that, I want to get into my discussion with Jane Griffith about her book, Words Have a Past. All right. And Jane Griffith joins us from Toronto this morning. Jane, how are you? I'm very good. How are you? 
I'm doing well. So thank you very much for joining me to talk about the book. Again, it's Words Have a Past. So let's get right into it because this is something that I have been involved with tangentially, to be fair, uh, residential schools in my work, both at Parks Canada and in a separate project that was associated with the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. But those things that I was doing was related specifically to the schools and their physical, in the physical sense, like the actual walls of the building. And this is something that I had never heard of. So I really want to know, how did you get into the project? And how did you think of turning the newspapers into a book length project? I was reading J.R. Mellish Rock's Vision, um, which is, you know, a really landmark monograph from the mid 90s that sort of tells the history of residential schools before Canada had a Truth and Reconciliation Commission. Um, so it's not as informed by survivor testimony, but does a deep dive into a lot of archives that previously were not being written about. And there's a few sentences in the book that describe industry at schools. So many of these schools, academics were not the focus in any way. And if they were, they were uh, very minimal compared to provincial schools for white settler children. And a lot of these schools had a reigning focus on industries. So for boys, blacksmithry, carpentry, harness making, farming, how to work a dairy, how to be a pig farmer. For girls, things like dressmaking, baking, sewing. And in Shingwok's vision, it also states that at some schools there was printing. And I'm not a historian. My background is in English literature, 19th century English literature, and historical studies and education. And I saw this sentence and, you know, my background, my focus is on things like narrative, rhetoric, story, subtext, metaphor. So I'm thinking printing programs. That's interesting. I've never heard of that before. But what I do know about residential schools is how important it was in their colonizing ventures to eradicate Indigenous languages, to denigrate Indigenous languages, and to hold the English language up as supreme. So I, I did a double take on that and, of course, flipped to the footnotes and saw where these printing programs were being referenced. And there was just a couple and they were in the 20th century. And I found them and, you know, there was there's some points there that were of importance for sure. But the more I started researching this and and eventually going to many, many other archives, 11 archival sites in total in the US and in Canada, I realized this was actually more widespread than is represented in Shingwok's vision, much, much, much more widespread than I ever knew. And so eventually I uh, started only focusing on the 19th century newspapers and was just really surprised by how much they held and how much they could tell us today in the 21st century about colonialism in Canada. So you mentioned that it's it was sort of a widespread thing. Now, the book focuses on specific schools, but was this something that was almost universal in residential schools across both Canada and the United States? And whose idea was it to produce them? Was this something that the government wanted to put out? Was it uh, the, the religious institutions that were running a lot of these schools? Or was it the, the local faculty? Like, like who, who really was pushing the idea of creating newspapers? It wasn't as widespread as a lot of under other industries at schools. And it sort of answers your second question, too, is who is pushing this? It certainly wasn't government because these were very expensive industries to teach mm. students. And they required late 19th century printing technology and not the state of the art kind. These, this was hand-me-down equipment that was often passed from a newspaper in a neighboring settler town and donated to the school, often by an interested editor at the newspaper who offered to help run the program and get the students started. 
some principals had a very vested interest because there's a long religious history of um, of printing materials in indigenous languages for the purposes of, of Christianizing, of missionizing, especially the newspaper I look at in Kitimat in British Columbia. The principal was somewhat versed in, in printing materials because of this background. A principal at uh, another school in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, he also had a background in newspaper printing because of, of his missionizing past. But no, government actually didn't really support these programs at all. Wow. There was an internal report in in the very late 1890s that said schools, it just seems like their main goal is to have a brass band and a printing press. And this needs to stop because it's expensive. Um, and because if the goal of teaching an industry is employment preparation, these students aren't going to make it as as printers. So there was also a very explicit limitation in place too about what was expected of students after school. Why, why would the government think they couldn't be printers it feels like in this era there was a need for for printers there was you know it's a, a industry that was large and, and quite successful like what was that that seems strange to me that they wouldn't think that it was an industry that the students would get into well also in that that report there's also a, um a bit of a diss on fancy carpentry too. So okay. I, I think it's it's things that the government assumed was was above the mm. the intelligence of students. But it's interesting you bring that up is there's actually a, a really clear example that students couldn't hack it as printers and not because of their um, limitation their own limitations or their own lack of talent at all. There was a student named Gilbert Bear who had attended Battleford School in Saskatchewan, and he was raved about in the newspapers for many years as um, the star of the school football team. He was one of the smartest students. Canada's fifth prime minister, Mackenzie Bull, came to the school um, for a little site visit and said, this is one of the most exceptional examples of printing I've ever seen, pointing out Gilbert Bear's talents. When Chicago World's Fair rolled around and they were asking for Indigenous students to be put on display, Gilbert Bear was selected as, as one of few students to go and he attended there for three months. And when he returned, he ran the print shop at Battleford School. He was the best of the best by markers that the government would have approved of, so much so that he got a job at the Ottawa Citizen. And he was, for years, worked there. He only was given night shifts. He was only given the lowly position of a printer's assistant. And the school had to continue to pay for his lodging because he wasn't making even enough money to sustain himself. And why? It's because of the printer's union has a, a really strong history in Canada as, as a leader amongst unions in the 1870s, for sure. And white supremacy didn't end with a union. It's actually bolstered within union right. settings in a lot of ways, right? So he was fired because he was. it was claimed that he couldn't follow directions, which doesn't make any sense if he survived in a residential school. And it's it's just a really clear example of, of how white supremacy would keep students back, even if the schools adequately prepared them for settler employment. So it's almost like the school and, and the people who are objecting to this are looking forward and saying, well, we have no interest of in changing the racist structure of this industry, so we're not going to prepare them for it, essentially. That's certainly part of it and and the money. Right. Yeah. So yeah, the, yeah the, the finances of it for sure. So on the, on the flip side of, of why would schools produce it, and, and the motivation of it, what did they think their audience was? Who were they producing the newspapers for, right? We'll, we'll certainly talk about sort of the work that goes into it. And I, I definitely want to talk about the language of it. But generally speaking, when you produce anything, any sort of written material, you want to find an audience for it. So who, who did they think they were writing these newspapers for? Who was reading them? The expected audience, to use Philip Delory's concept of expected and unexpected, the expected audience 
are white settlers. Um, it's it's written to them. When Indigenous people are being discussed, they're not being discussed as as the people who are potentially reading this. But there's evidence that that they were that parents, when they were able to read this, were able to access it, read it, and Indigenous children in the schools were reading it. But the big audience that was expected, it was used a lot of times as a fundraising tool. So audiences included philanthropic societies in Canada and the U.S. That was a big one. It was sent to government. So Department of Indian Affairs had subscriptions to a lot of these. They're, they're puff pieces. They're, they're showing what, resi- what Indian boarding schools in the 19th century were doing and doing really well. They were sent to churches in England as well to drum up financial support. Also, many subscribers included proto-anthropological societies that were newly emerging in North America. There was a keen interest in in the ethnographic and in the quote-unquote other. So you see evidence of catering to that audience throughout these newspapers. And then the newspaper was also claimed to be a source of revenue in that it could be exchanged with other schools as cheap or free reading material. So a school in Saskatchewan could send its newspaper to a school in Kansas and vice versa, and they would have this free reading material. So there was an anticipated audience of the children reading it as well, but they're not directly spoken to. It it really is a white adult settler audience that's anticipated. So is there any thought in in creating this material for this audience you mentioned that it's a lot of puff pieces is there any desire explicit desire on the part of the schools who are creating these newspapers to hide things that they're cognizant that negative things are happening that there's abuse in the schools are they so conscious of that that they're attempting to cover it up and create the sense that these are good schools that it's a positive experience for the students to hide things or is it more just the general PR that they want to put out that they're doing a good job? Oh, no, the, the, the former, um, that there's every page has, has examples of this. If you go into the archives and read what was happening at the same time that was reported. So parental resistance doesn't receive any airtime at all in these newspapers. And it was ongoing, of course. Parents were resisting what was happening at schools all the time. Death at schools, you can find evidence of that in the archives. It doesn't appear in the newspapers. When it does, it is very, very carefully crafted. It's it's buried. Bad news is buried all the time. You know, what came out of the TRC was, was rethinking how fire setting is a form of resistance. Running away is a form of resistance. All of this is, when it's mentioned in the newspapers at all, is reframed as, as truancy, as bad behavior. And, you know, if a fire is, is mentioned, um, all of the, the firefighting equipment that will newly be in place is is mentioned alongside it so the resistance is is always quashed for readers so yeah these newspapers are experts in in either just completely alighting bad news or or massaging it out into a good news story and one of the things i was particularly taken by when i was i was reading about uh, the book is that it's not just the words that are doing this in, in sort of creating this positive idea of the schools that you do talk about, even things like the the way the newspaper is set. And certainly photographs are, are part of that. I, I talked on the show with Janice Forsyth earlier mm-hmm. in the spring about sports and the use of sports as a colonial project. And certainly in some of the images that I've seen from residential schools that were put out for public consumption, a lot of students playing sports were, were used in that. So in what ways does the style of the newspaper and the use of photographs help create this sense that everything is great at the schools? Particularly, I, I'm particularly struck by the, the way it's sort of set up. Because, you know, when I pick up a newspaper, I don't give it that much thought of where things are and how it's laid out. You know, I'm sort of looking for Where's this section? And I'm just sort of pulling it apart as soon as I, I get a newspaper. So you know, that side of it, I find it really fascinating, sort of how the outline of a paper can influence 
the way in which the reader perceives the content. You might not give it a lot of thought, but but people in in the industry certainly do, right? And right. Yeah. and the principals who are largely responsible for printing these newspapers, it's really clear. So to answer your first part about the photographs, uh, absolutely, many of these newspapers used photographs. But what's very interesting is to take one example: the school that Gilbert Bear went to, Battleford School. In one year, as one example, had 14 carpenters, they trained 14 blacksmiths, they trained 17 farmers, they only trained three printers. And yet photographs, staged photographs, portraits of printers were much more common than portraits of carpenters or blacksmiths or farmers. So there was something particular about the printers who were usually the academic all-stars of the school. Um, They were photographed at Carlisle School, the big flagship school in Pennsylvania that was a model for so many schools in Canada as well. They would offer photographs if you would subscribe, if you would submit names of new subscribers to the newspaper. So this was seen as, um, you know, a, a reward for signing up more people. So photography in, in residential schools, you know, is, is a whole other discussion. It, it was used just as much as a form of propaganda as the newspapers were. And in terms of the layout, absolutely. Um, you know, you, you asked about how bad news was delivered, and it's very carefully buried in these newspapers. Edward Francis Wilson, who was the principal at the Shingwak Home, which was the school in Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario, he had several columns in his newspaper and the layout of where and how those columns appeared were really strategic. He had one column called Indian Tribes, which is where he would put all of his ethnographic research into. And then several pages later, he would have his other column called My Wife and I, which was sort of a behind the scenes look at how he collected his ethnographic material, just as one example of, of layout. One of the things that I, I always think of, and I have, I have a friend who was a teacher who once asked me about residential schools and, and said, was it really as bad as some of the things that we hear? And, and the answer I always use is, you know, you're a teacher. How many, how many students are buried in your school's cemetery? Mm-hmm. Right. And the answer, of course, is zero. So, you know, th- to me, that's the easiest way to frame the, the residential school discussion. But at the same time, I have come across some stories of people who are at residential schools who do look back on them as having provided certain opportunities. So is there some sort of self-selection within the newspapers where some of the students who might be profiled or might be participating are students who did feel as though they were having a positive experience? You know, not, not to sort of set it in this way of, residential schools were fine, everything was okay. But, you know, those those anecdotal stories that I have heard, are those the type of students who would be encouraged to participate or even potentially want to participate in this type of a project? I would never speak or claim to speak for, for survivors um, yeah. and, and how they were feeling at all. It's, it's hard to even say if things that are attributed to students in the newspapers are ever actually written by students. We have no idea, right? So I'm really true, cautious yeah. about of that in the book. And it's, it's always pieces that are attributed to students. Um, and the distinction I try to make in the book is that there are pieces attributed to students that go alongside the piece that the principal wrote as well. It, it has the same messaging and it talks about really happy moments like spelling bees or or picnics or visits from from dignitaries or, or what have you, or a nice sunny day. But Andrew Wolford's research is really helpful. He thinks of he describes settler colonialism as as a series of nets, mesh nets that are on top of each other. So there's the the first layer has really closely connected holes in the mesh net and then there's one on top that the holes are a little bigger and then there's the the larger net that has really big holes and these different layers of settler colonialism even if there's respite even if there's a really exciting hockey game that occurred that day it doesn't negate the fact that there's still three layers of mesh nets on top that restrict and 
expand depending on what's happening at the time. So there might be a nice teacher, there might be a nice Indian agent in that moment, but it doesn't negate the fact that these schools were in place to remove Indigenous peoples from their land and make it possible for white settlers to have this land. So in terms of the violence that was happening at schools that's that's not mentioned in the newspapers, um, death, of course, is a really obvious example. But what the book tries to make a claim for, too, is thinking about the violence of, of attacks on Indigenous languages as equally troubling and equally as a tool of removing Indigenous peoples and severing from land and, and severing ties amongst generations. Let's get into this discussion about language, because obviously that is one of the, the core issues that is front and center in the book uh, and in residential schools in general. So how do the newspapers support the new, the efforts on the part of residential schools to eliminate indigenous languages and to force students to speak uh, English in, in all the cases here, it's English, right? There's no yes. French language schools. Yes. Um, so, so for the cases that you're looking at to, to get the students to learn English and to use English as their first language. Yeah. Sorry. And to clarify, there's French language schools, but not newspapers that I'm aware of that were in French. Yeah. So Verna St. Denis, Marie Baptiste, scholars today, they're really helpful in, in ensuring that we are very critical of concepts like language loss, which makes it seem like Indigenous languages disappeared or lost as if they were misplaced. And that's certainly a narrative that's alive and well today and that was alive and well in in the newspapers. They go out of their way to explain that the students are forgetting Cree. They are uh, preferring English over Simshian. They are, there's no violence necessary. There's no punishment necessary. This is coming from the students who are just, quote unquote, losing their language. And of course, we know that that's not the case. The the schools were very strategic in, in attacking languages. Government was very explicit about how important it was to inculcate students with English, Indigenous students with English, in terms of the colonial project. Edward Francis Wilson, I mentioned at Shingwak Home, he was probably the most confusing at first person, if, if you really think about it, because he was so dedicated to Indigenous languages on the surface. He went on a 7,000 mile trip throughout the US where he went to go visit other Indian boarding schools. And this was ostensibly to um, get tips and tricks and bring them back to Canada. And as a side note, that's one thing the newspapers really show is how much active engagement across the colonial border was happening with principals sharing best practices for running schools. We often think of the two systems as really siloed and they weren't. But he would go on these trips and he would call it, quote, getting Indian words. And he would he would call it that he was adding to his stock. And he would create these huge compendia of Indigenous languages, comparing words, trying to piece together their origins. And at the same time, in the schools that he ran, he would have a jeton system that maybe you're familiar with from learning French growing up or whatever, where, you know, if you speak the language that's prohibited at the school, and it could have been many, these were multilingual spaces with children from very different, often linguistic backgrounds. They would have a a set of, of tokens and they would lose a token every time they spoke their indigenous language. And then by the end of the week, if you still had some tokens on hand, you could, you know, compete for a bag of candy or whatever. So he was racing around North America trying to collect indigenous languages before they disappeared, according to him, and at the same time was responsible for this school that was quickening the, the accelerating the teaching of, of English. What's interesting to me about, about that, though, is in thinking about how this would get then get presented out with, with the newspapers, is if I'm him and I'm going around and I'm collecting all this information. If I want to share it through the newspaper and given who the audience, the intended audience of the newspaper is, it would have to be in English, right? So I, I'm just sort of curious as to 
if they're trying to reach out to a white colonial audience through the newspapers, how does the forcing of the students to learn English run in conflict with the, the promotion, the PR side of what the newspapers are trying to accomplish? Part of what many of the principals as well as government officials would talk about when they wouldn't explicitly say uh, we're teaching English because this is severing ties amongst generations and making land theft more uh, possible. They, they would sell it often as a lingua franca. So they would say, this continent has so many languages. It would be so much easier if we all spoke one. Hey, why not English? Which completely decontextualizes the power structures in place and the role of English, you know, more globally as well. Right. Um, so absolutely was sold as PR. And, and the lingua franca, franca narrative is still... You hear that as well. I heard it on the CBC a few years ago when there was a panel discussion about Indigenous languages being taught in schools. So in terms of the collecting then of Indigenous languages and talking in that realm, you know, is there this idea that for the, the individuals who are putting out the newspapers, do they believe in some way that what they're doing is good and is right? Whether it is through, that's a great example of going around and collecting uh, information about Indigenous languages. But in terms of whether it's, it's linguistic or just the idea of, quote unquote, civilizing, like, do they have this genuine belief that they're doing something that is good, that they're doing the right thing and they want that to be known? Maybe. I mean, I have right here a, a quote from just randomly in front of me, but it's perfect. The The principal, Richard Pratt, who was the architect of, of the, the Carlisle School, which I mentioned is this big model in Pennsylvania. He says, the sooner all tribal relations are broken up, the sooner the Indian loses all Indian ways, even his language, the better it will be for him and for the government and the greater will be the economy for both. So it, I guess. I don't know. I just, I'm having flashbacks of Lynn Bayek, the senator who, who recently, sure. you know, focuses on the the good and, and is, is thinking about how maybe there was, you know, misunderstandings or, or people were trying to be good and, and it's just being read differently in a different era. And it's just, that's just way too much credit to such a, a violent and damaging system. Right. I guess I'm thinking about it more in the sense of how pervasive the colonial system was that the people who are enforcing it and imposing it upon these children are just so involved in it that they don't realize necessarily mm-hmm. that, that that's what's going on. I, I think it's more that they're just unconscious to their place within this structure and the damage that it's being, that is being done to the students around them because they're just so almost laser focused on, they have tunnel vision on what's going on and they can't see, I guess, the forest for the trees. I guess, but I mean, even the word unconscious, I start getting a little nervous about because you hear about even today right oh unconscious bias and it's sort of this smokescreen for racism it's right. it, yeah i don't know i yeah. just don't i don't i think that's giving too much credit and regardless of of what people's motivations or understandings for at the end of the day you know what i'm really inspired by and and try to read these newspapers alongside is is contemporary survivor testimony fiction written by survivors memoir written by survivors that really you know puts that way out of my mind i'm much more interested in in hearing uh, their experiences and what what they're saying so let's let's get into that and and some of the conflicts that exist between what the newspapers are saying and some of the survivor <laughs> testimonies and the experiences that the the students say that they had versus what was what was published and how how divergent are they and how much does the book get into that element of it and, and sort of what the survivors were discussing or, or have said have their experiences were in their testimonies versus what the newspapers said was going on. My research focused on the 19th century. So 
you know, survivor testimony pretty much with just a couple of uh, very small exceptions doesn't exist from that specific time period. And a lot of the survivor fiction and, and memoir and testimony is, is looking at schools more from the mid 20th century and, and survivors that are still here today. But at the same time, what that still helps is to see the, the fissures in the narrative, see where things are not quite adding up. And there are fissures. So like I said, the newspapers are largely the voice of the principal. And that's um, where I see my own role as a white settler is looking at white settler documents, these newspapers, and what narratives are still being used today, what, what forms of rhetoric are still being used today. And there's, there's a, a long continuity that I see, an unbroken continuity that I see here. But in terms of what contemporary survivor testimony shows me is, you know, an example of the Jubilee celebrations. So the newspapers make a big splash of when Queen Victoria's Jubilees are celebrated. They're, they're massive. Right? There's fireworks. There are um, politicians that visit the school. There's a big picnic. There's all kinds of celebrations and breaks in the everyday and, and a lot of preparation leading up to the celebrations. So the columns authored by the principal or the, the nameless voice of the newspaper, which is really coded as the principal, talk about the celebrations as glorifying Queen Victoria and, and connecting uh, Canada back to the metropole. And the sections that are attributed to students are saying something really different. They're saying this community celebration, parents were allowed to visit the school that day. And those sections attributed to students, again, whether or not they're written by students, I, I wonder if they are in this instance because they're saying they're, that's the only part of the newspaper that mentions that parents, some siblings were able to visit the school. And it says, you know, the parents were coming into the school and visiting all about. So it doesn't get into what were parents, they're there to see their children. This is obviously a really special day um, compared to all the other days where they're prohibited from seeing each other. But it also discusses them going throughout the school and, and possibly checking in on what conditions were like there. And we know from the shadow texts of these newspapers that uh, exist in the archives that parents were coming to schools and, and checking in on things when they could or, or sending people in their, their place to see if conditions were being met, if the standards they thought were in place were actually being met. So that would be one of those examples of, if not explicitly saying things are great, by saying that parents were there and looking around, it's implied, therefore, that conditions are fine, everything is great, like nothing to see here, move on sort of thing, right? Sure. And then survivor testimony helps me to see those examples as, as something much more than the newspaper allows. Right, right. Because, yeah, the newspaper is not going to put forth, like if a parent showed up and said, hey, this is wrong, the, the newspaper is not going to say that. And the newspaper is not going to say, oh, this is a really unique day out of the whole rest right, of the right. year. And it's only in service of, of celebrating the queen. Right. Which, of course, you know, there's no more colonial thing than celebrating uh, mm -hmm. The Queen on on the Jubilee, of course, right. um, and and I, I guess I, I'm struck too by the what you said. There's continuity in in a lot of this when we compare some of the the ways in which things were being talked about in the past versus today. Could, can we just hone in on that a little bit? Because I'm always struck by the vocabulary that's used in discussing schools by individuals who want to put it in the best or, or want want to put it in a positive light in some way. And when they're discussing whether it's abuse or death or, or whatever it is, some of the vocabulary I, I'm always struck by, is that something that is part of this continuity in terms of the language and the words that are used both in the newspapers in the 19th century and some of the discussions that continue to happen in Canada? There are a lot of differences. We settlers are very adept at, at morphing language when it's called out and, and changing that, right, to something that's maybe more palatable and in, in a new um, generation. One consistent form of language are pronouns. So one newspaper is called Our Forest Children. 
And that hour, you still see in newspapers all the time where non-Indigenous writers will talk about our Indigenous peoples um, as if they belong to settlers or what they're probably implying too is that they belong to Canada um, rather than as two totally distinct nations. Yeah, so that continuity is is clearly there. Yeah, that's something I've noticed too in in sort of my work that that I do. That there there is definitely this idea of don't write things like Canada's First Nations or Canada's mm-hmm. Indigenous people because that 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 use of the possessive mm-hmm. is like it just sort of implies that the colonial structure is the the dominant thing, and it mm-hmm. kind of eliminates the agency of the first nations in the process so instead of canada's first nations it's first nations in canada mm-hmm. uh, right that that sort of small linguistic change actually has a lot of meaning behind it yeah absolutely as settlers can adapt the language and the this vocabulary used the messaging though remains consistent yeah there there's a lot of of things that you see operating in in the newspapers that are still operating today um i mentioned this idea of language loss pitting indigenous language resurgence as the reason for that is is something the fault of indigenous peoples instead of really taking a step back and you know teaching in school how did english come here in the first place? How did English arrive on this continent? It's a very naturalized history that we never really talk about. And even, you know, this newspaper is showing exactly, it's showing the the debate clubs, the literary societies, the magic lantern shows, the photography, all of these tools that were used to teach English. Um, it's it, it denaturalizes its quote unquote, arrival onto the continent that we really don't think about today. And so a lot of support for Indigenous language resurgence, it's framed very much as a one-off charity or this one-time funding or something like that, instead of this is, this is a debt owed. This is, a, this is justice that's required on the part of the state rather than just something that, yeah, is, a, is in need of charity. Right. Because, yeah, language is one of those things that is so central to culture. And, you know, even the example that I like to use is, you know, my grandmother called the couch a Chesterfield, right? Like that, like those sorts of things can denote where you are, time and place, uh, those, those little differences in language, even within one language, can can really mean something to a culture. And the, the way in which language was forcibly removed from certain cultures or certain communities around uh, North America, it's really one of those things that it's, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts. It seems like it's hard to pin down like specific moments when that happens as opposed to it's a just a broad social structure that is designed to eliminate linguistic diversity more than that i mean there's it's really clear in a lot of the department of indian affairs materials and the newspapers that that they're very aware that attacking language is attacking community ties it's attacking family ties it's attacking claims to land and indigenous scholars um, like Andrea Bear Nicholas and I mentioned Marie Batiste and, and Verna St. Dennis and Lisa Brooks and and Daniel Heath Justice they're they're all talking about that today as well that there's it's no wonder there were such strong attacks to begin with I mentioned Andrea Bear Nicholas she and and Lorena Fontaine they talk a lot about the term linguicide which is a much more helpful way to think about attacks on language than just being a random attack, but as a form of genocide. And it was in the original United Nations definition of of genocide, and it was taken out of the earlier drafts. Um, But it was known after World War II as well, right? That this, this is a common technique. And of course, who, who helped to get this definition out of the draft, it was settler colonial states like Canada, like the US, like New Zealand, like Australia, that were were having question marks about having this in an official definition of genocide. Mm. So it's so important that scholars today are are pointing to this term linguicide and, and saying, you know, this is what was happening. 
So for anyone who is going to come to the book and, and read it, what should their expectations be for for coming to this? I, I know a lot of material that, that people pick up who, who like to read history tend to get things that are in this chronologic sense. And, and I know that uh, this book takes a, a bit of a different approach. But w- what do you think people or what should people expect as they come to the book? And what do you hope that they get out of it? And, and what do you hope the audience takes from the book uh, as they as they go through the material? Yeah, I'm, I'm not a historian. And I think um, one of the chapters is actually called Anachronism. And it's playing with, I don't know, you're the historian, so maybe um, you can tell me how how much of a faux pas this is. But what I wanted to do was actually um, um, commit presentism um, on purpose and, and take what the Truth and Reconciliation Commission highlighted, some big, big, big themes coming out of that. Take those that I was learning from survivor testimony today and take that lens and go backwards and look at, okay, what are the newspapers saying about these themes? Which I understand is, is, you know, something you definitely would want to be conscious of as a, as a trained historian, but I'm not, so I can play around with this maybe. And I also divvy up the book into three main parts. So there's a couple of chapters on language. There's a couple of chapters on on space and place and land and time. So language, time and place are really these unifying or these organizing themes for me in the book rather than a, a chronological breakdown of what's happening in each newspaper. And I'm not really looking at change over time because these newspapers folded very quickly a lot of times. So I'm really looking at a very, very small time period as well. And I don't look at, in the book, at 20th century newspapers, although I did research them. They don't appear in the book. It's really just focused on this late 19th century period when so much was happening in in larger Canadian history as well. For anyone who's, who's looking at it, I, I think I love the, the title of the introduction, uh, Bury the Lead. Uh, I, I love whenever we can use the word lead in anything, yes. uh, the L-E-D-E version. Um, and it, and it, it, to me, it really highlights a lot of what's going on. Uh, with these newspapers, uh, as you describe them, that they're trying to hide things, right, and put this best face forward. So they're definitely hiding or burying the lead uh, in a very real way. And I wonder too. I mean, I you know you say you're not a historian, and you know we forgive that on this show. <laughs> Thank you. Um, if we, uh, uh, I'm curious to you know like this this book strikes me as a really important contribution to the wider uh, material that's coming out as part of the study of colonialism in Canada and the way in which state-run colonialism and colonial structures really came to dominate a lot of the discussion of relationships between Indigenous people and settlers across the country. And, And those relationships, to me, are exemplified really well in these newspapers. So the way in which the book is structured to me makes a lot of sense and to not have it in that chronological format, given what is under study, I think it's a a really good approach and uh, what I've seen of it so far, I'm very impressed with the way it's put together. Thank you. That's reassuring coming from a historian. (laughs) And I, I want, I want readers to, you know, the title of the book is words have a past and it's, it's English words have a past that there is a violence in the teaching of English that anyone teaching should, should really in, in English and in French, although that's not the focus of this book really needs to be aware of and think about present day forms of resistance to linguicide in that context. Yeah, absolutely. It's one of these things that I, I it was sort of put right front for me about five years ago. I had the opportunity to to go to Beijing and teach at a university in in Beijing for a, a summer as mm. part of a, an international program, and that's where it really hit me that uh, you know the the strength or the force of the English language and. The, in all the meaning that goes behind teaching. I wasn't teaching English. I was teaching history in English, mm-hmm. but there was definitely a dynamic at play there that I wrestled with the whole time uh, teaching 
Chinese students history, particularly when we were doing, it was world history courses, teaching Chinese students about the cultural revolution in China, in English, there was just a lot in my head that I really struggled with mm -hmm. as I was going through that process. And yeah, the, the language definitely has a power mm -hmm. to it, uh, given the history of British and English colonialism. So that's such a, a really great example, that discomfort, that perhaps even not to put words in your mouth, but even shame or, or feeling of, of being unsettled. I guess that that would be a, a byproduct, a hopeful byproduct of this book for me is for settlers to read it and to feel that same discomfort about speaking English, teaching English, teaching about Canadian history here. Right. Which we don't feel maybe unless we're as you did go away, but to feel it here. So where can people find the book and where else can they find some of your work that uh, you, you've been doing? People can find the book through the University of Toronto Press uh, website. That's who published it. Or perhaps you can order it from your independent bookstore. And you can find more about my work from my Ryerson University page. If you just search my name in Ryerson University, you can find it and learn more about the book. And, and the biggest takeaway, I think, is that all of the examples of Indigenous resistance to linguicide um, from the 19th century and today, the book focuses a lot on that. Yeah, so definitely check it out. And I'm always excited when university publishers have paperback versions. Uh, so there is a paperback version of it. So definitely yes. check it out uh, this, for sure. This is a tip if if you're looking at a contract and you're thinking about this, this was in the contract. I made someone very kindly told me this beforehand and I never would have thought to ask about that, but to have simultaneous paperback and, and hard copy publication. Yeah, I I didn't know you could do that. Someone told me this and um, awesome. University of Toronto Press said, yes, put that in. That's important. Yes, everybody do that from now on. Yes. Simultaneous paperbacks. I love it. Yes. <laughs> Get it from your library. You don't need to buy it. Yeah. So again, the, the book is Words Have a Past, The English Language Colonialism and the Newspapers of Indian Boarding Schools. Jane Griffin, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with me. Thank you so much. So there you have it. My discussion with Jane Griffith about her book. Again, it's Words Have a Past, The English Language, Colonialism, and the Newspapers of Indian Boarding Schools. And as we said on the show, I love when these things come out as paperbacks, especially if you can get a first-run paperback. That is a nice tip for anybody who's signing a contract with the university press. So my thanks to Jane. Encourage everybody to check out the book. So that'll do it for this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. If you have not yet, please do subscribe to the show on Apple, Google, wherever it is you get your podcast. Do the likes, the ratings, all that good stuff. Helps keep the show going. Helps other people find what we're doing as we continue to go with the weekly schedule. I think we'll do this till at least the end of the year and we'll see what happens after that. But uh, I've, I've enjoyed going to the weekly schedule. So head on over to activehistory.ca. You can check out other material, including all of our past episodes. Uh, this is 164. A lot of great stuff in the archives there. And if you want to let me know what you want to hear on the show, you can find me on Twitter at the Sean Graham, or you can always email the show HistorySlam at gmail.com. So, We'll talk to you again next week, but until then, if you're up and you've seen Rico Palazzo, please say hi for me. Thanks for listening to the History Slam podcast. Be sure to check out Active History for more features, articles, and be sure to subscribe on iTunes.